You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8 or 9 or somewhere in there. Um, we are going to be all over the scripture today. There'll be scripture references on the screen and uh, in your notes. And those that aren't there, you can write down to study later and to make sure that you have looked at them in their context and make sure that the preacher is teaching what the Word of God says in its context. Uh, but the nature of uh, this morning's message is um, the practice of new covenant giving. This is part two of a two-part series on new covenant giving. And so um, at the end of last year, as we were looking at last year's budget and talking, the elders asked me uh, to, if I would preach uh, a series on giving. It's been a long time since we've preached on this topic. And they wanted to make sure that you were understanding what the Bible has to say. And our concern is that many of you maybe haven't thought about it or were taught different things or maybe haven't been taught much at all and haven't given much thought to what you should give and how you should give. And uh, so that's what we're doing this. As I've dug into this topic, I've found some things that have caused me to change uh, past positions based upon the Scripture. And so I talked about this last week, that there's full disclosure. Uh, some things that I have taught in the past, maybe from this very pulpit, I have changed my position on. And so if you hear something, you say, I thought he said something different before. There might be tapes available somewhere. There might be cassette tapes. That's so long ago. And some of you say cassette tapes. Yes, that's how long ago I'm talking. Um, and uh, they might be found somewhere. You can find that. We're not trying to hide anything, but it's hard to find some old information. But if you do hear that and then recognize that it's, it's quite possible that I've changed my position. And uh, our, our goal as believers is to never um, be so stuck in a position that we will not change if the Scripture teaches it. Nor do we want to be so open to every wind of doctrine that the next time a preacher gets up and says something different, we just blow along with it. So how do you become strong, people of strong convictions who are open to change? <laughs> it's, the Word of God is, is our final authority. And uh, so I have to admit that when I'm wrong. I've been wrong in times in the past. Um, there's a good chance I'll be wrong sometime in the future, uh, but don't bet on it. All right, I think I think I found every truth in there, and I know exact. No, I wish it's one of those things where you wish that you came out of Bible college or seminary with everything nailed down and right. I wish it was true, um, but unfortunately, that's rarely true for anybody. And uh, so we will work through it together as a church family and, and seek to submit ourselves to the Scripture. Before we dig into what we want to look at today, let's pray together. Father, we need your help. I pray that your word will be rightly divided and that it will be clearly proclaimed and uh, taught. Help us to hear and understand and to apply. As Mark prayed, Lord, we, we don't want to just be lazy in our application or lazy in our study, but we want to, to dig into the scripture, mine it for what it has to say, and then live it out. So we need your help to do that. We need your spirit to take the word of God and to transform us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Our theme this morning is this, prayerfully plan and cheerfully give what God directs you to give in support of the local church. So prayerfully plan and cheerfully give what God directs you to give in support of a local church. Last week, we laid the foundation for new covenant giving. We tried to build the foundation, and then we're going to give the practicalities this week because I didn't have enough time to go over all of it last week. It wasn't my plan necessarily to have two sermons, but it turned into that. Last week, the first point was this, the tithe is not the starting point of new covenant giving. The tithe is not the starting point of new covenant giving. So giving a tenth of all that you make, a tenth of all your income is not a command 
or a starting point for new covenant giving. And you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. I'm not going to re-preach that now. So the question is, does that mean I don't have to give 10% anymore? That's what every teenager asked when they left the sermon last week. I, I got reports. Do I have to give? Does that mean, Mom and Dad, I can quit giving 10%? If it's not a command, it's not even a starting point, can I just not give at all? Or can I just give a little bit or maybe just a tiny bit? I don't know, something like that. Well, let me say this. Hear me clearly. Don't fall asleep yet. 10% is not the minimum. Minimum. A tithe is not the minimum, nor is it the maximum. So, specifically, how much we are to give to the Lord's work is not as simple as we wish it was. And I raise my hand to that. I wish it was simpler. And so this might frustrate you. It kind of frustrates me. And it might leave you with more questions than answers. Maybe you left last week more kind of frustrated with a feeling more up in the air. So hopefully I bring some clarity and bring some answers. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as 10%. If it was, it would be real simple. 10% is the command. 10% or at least is the goal. And so aim for it. And if you can do it, do it. And that's great. Everyone's good. And it would be really simple. And, and, and I prefer simple. I'm just a simple man with simple needs, and I, I prefer to be simple. Uh, but sometimes God doesn't give us simplicity, and so that makes it difficult. And so that's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. Um, this is, this, these sermons are, are making me have to do a lot more thinking and praying and talking to Tracy. And so um, if, that's your, if that's you as well, then we can all grieve together. But uh, this is where we're at. What is the foundation for new covenant giving? Well, I had three basic principles last week. First of all, God is the generous owner who has given you everything you have. Everything you have has come from the hand of God. Everything. It is God's. He gave it to you. How did he give it to you? He gave it to you in a stewardship. So you are a steward who will give an account for how you use the owner's resources. Look at the parable of Matthew 25, 14 to 30. You are a steward, and the master has given you so much to use, and how you use it, you will give an account for. Every single thing you have. Every second of your life, every penny that you have, every little tiny talent and great big ability, everything. Everything you have, you will give an account. God has given you resources. He's the owner. You're just a steward. But we have an owner's mentality and we therefore then try to decide how much of our resources we should give to God. And that is not the way we should look at it. We should look at it this way. How much of God's resources should we give back? And we say give back to God. You think of what it means to give to God. That's, there's some ambiguity there. But how much of all that God has given me, all that is God's resources, should I give to others? Should I give to the church? Should I give to missionaries? Should I give to my neighbor? That's what I should be asking. And so since all of it is God's, we need God's wisdom for what to do with it. How much do we give and to whom do we give it? And so this is God's. And then our giving is based on Jesus Christ giving his life for us. Our giving is based on Jesus Christ giving his life for us. Are you as generous as your Father in heaven is generous? Are you as sacrificial as Jesus Christ, your Savior, is sacrificial? And so our mindset must not be on how much I can selfishly spend on myself. How little do I have to give? Mom and dad, please give me the minimum. 
Give me the requirement, please. And then I'll, I'll meet the requirement, but, but don't, don't ask for more, but please just give me. I, I want to, it's because some of you, some of you, not all of you, some of you are, are law keepers. You want to please mom and dad. You want to keep the rules. You want to be a good kid. Amen. Some of you are rebels, wicked to the core, and you don't care. But this is for the law keepers. The law keepers is this. It's simpler to have a law because then you can feel good about yourself by just meeting that minimum requirement. I've done all that I need to do. But that's not what the Bible says about anything, but especially about giving, and we'll talk about that as we go through. So again, it's not about how much can I keep and just use on myself. That's, that's some of the things, is we, is we have had the mi- mindset, many of us, or, or whether the preachers and pastors or churches intended this or not, that I give 10% to God, and when I, when I pay my tithe to God, that means the 90% he has nothing to say about or, or to do with that. I can just do whatever I want with the 90 because I, it's like if I, if I pay my bill, then, then the landowner can't come and yell at me. I can do what I want with the land. No, it's not, it's not that way at all. And so that, that's difficult for us if we've had that mindset. So practically speaking, what do we do? Well, the first thing I want to talk about this morning, new, is the frequency of giving. The first thing we want to look at is the frequency of giving. How frequently do I need to give? The principle is this in the scripture. Regularly set aside what God wants you to give from the first fruits of what he gives you. Regularly set aside what God wants you to give from the first fruits of what he gives you. The first place we look is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, where Paul admonishes the church at Corinth, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So regularly, Paul says, on the first day of the week, so on Sunday, set aside some of what God has given you for the collection. Now, the context behind this verse is that Paul was coming to Corinth, and he was going to collect an offering for the church at Jerusalem. There had been a famine. There had been hard and and financial difficulties. And so the Christian church in Corinth is going to support the Christian brothers in Jerusalem. They had promised to give. They had promised to take a collection. And Paul says, when I come up, when I show up, we're going to come, and then we're going to take the money, and we're going to go back to Jerusalem with the money. So you need to have the money ready when I come so that we don't have to wait for this collection time. So in those days, if you didn't have the money on hand, what could you do? Well, you could go into debt. You could borrow it from someone else or get it from someone else. Or you just have to wait to collect. So collect in advance because when I show up, you're going to give me the collection I'm going to leave. I don't want to show up and then have to wait three months, six months for you to collect at that time. So so notice carefully the context. This is a one-time collection for other Christians. This is not a weekly collection for the local church in Corinth. This is not a command to even give weekly. And I've used it that way, and I think others have used it that way. On the first day of the week, bring your tithes into the storehouse. So we connect this verse to the verse in Malachi, and it all neatly ties up in a bow. It's not that neat. I wish it was, but it's not. And so the idea here is also notice that the collection, where are they keeping the collection? I believe you're keeping it in your own house. Put something aside and store it up. Where are they storing? There's no church building in Corinth. Uh, They might have been giving it to someone else to keep for safekeeping, but most likely you were setting aside some of what you had, just aside, and then when the collection time came, everyone brought from their own house and they gave to the special offering. 
This would be like me saying, in six months, we're going to take a special offering to put a new roof on the church, so start saving now. And on the first Sunday of July, we're all going to give what God has given to us for the, for the um, roof fund. Don't give in advance, save up and give then. That's kind of the idea of what's taking place here. Now notice the principle, though, that we take from this is whatever the pattern of your income, that should be the pattern of your setting aside. The reason they should set aside something every week is the income, like our income for the most part, comes in regularly weekly for most people. So if you get a weekly income and you're saving up for an offering, you need to take some of that weekly income and put it in another fund, set it aside for the offering, the collection that's going to become. Because everyone knows that if you don't intentionally set aside some of that income every week, what happens to all the income? It turns into outgo. Right? This is why Dave Ramsey says, do everything with envelopes. Turn everything into cash, and that way you can't spend it because it's in the wrong envelope. And some of you have done that in times past to help discipline yourself in your spending and giving and all those other things. So the idea is, if I just take all of the income and I say, well, I'll put some aside later, and then I live all week, and oh, man, I don't have any money left. That's what happened for some of you today. You came into church. You weren't prepared to give. The plates, you know, we bow, we pray for the offering. Oh, now we start looking. So I pull out the wallet, and I look in the... Oh, what happened? Who took all my money? We start talking while the prayer's going on. What happened to all the cash? It's all gone. Well, what can we do? Well, Lord, we'll give next week. Lord, please, uh, please provide, because I spent it all. That's what you should not do. You are supposed to set aside from the beginning, from each week, what you are to give, and whether you bring it every week and give it to the Lord then, or you, or you keep, a, keep a collection at home and bring it at certain times, that's the point. When your income comes in, you need to set some aside immediately or you will spend it all. And uh, how many of you uh, are now uh, repenting in guilt and shame? Right? Not maybe from something this week, but maybe for times past. We've, most of us, almost all of us have been there in one way or another. But that's the principle. Set aside some of what you get for what God would have you to give. Set it aside on a regular basis. Regularly plan. Now, the second part of the principle... Uh, go back to the, the, the slide with the principle, the next slide. The second part of the principle, or go back, I guess. I think uh, I've got scripture next. Can you go back? There we go. Regularly set aside what God wants you to give. That's the idea. As income comes in, you set aside some as the income comes in. Now, the second part of this principle is from the first fruits of what he gives you. The first, first I can't say that. You say it fast. First fruits principle. So the first fruits principle comes um, from the Old Testament. One passage is Exodus 23. And some of you know this passage, or passages like this. It says, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So there's a first fruits harvest, and there's a first fruits uh, celebration, and then there's an ingathering at the end, and there's a celebration at the end. So we celebrate at the beginning of harvest and at the end of harvest. One Thanksgiving celebration is not enough. Don't you wish you were a Jew? All right, we're going to have two parties, one at the beginning, we get the first harvest in, because there's going to be multiple harvests, and then one at the end. And so we give the first fruits, the best of the first fruits of, of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. This is a great passage, it'll preach, won't it? Bring the first fruits, where? Into the house of the Lord. Okay, it's not that simple, but the principle is here. Matthew Henry says this, at the feast of ingathering, as it is called, they must give God thanks for the harvest mercies they had received and must depend upon him for the next harvest. You must depend on him. 
So what you have is when the first harvest comes in, you have a celebration and you give from that, that first harvest in faith that God will bring more. You don't wait until you've harvested all the stuff and then say, oh, how good has the harvest been? Now we will give to the Lord. That's why when you connect it to regularly planning and setting aside, you don't wait until the end of the month and then check the the bank account or the end of the year and check the bank account and see what's at the end. Notice the principle tied to the regular planning because what will happen is you'll say, well, I guess God didn't provide enough. But one of the reasons God doesn't provide more is because when we hold on to what he's given to us, worried about whether it will be enough, he gives us less. So notice how this principle works. If God gives you some and you cling to it, what can he not do? He cannot put more in because you have closed fist hands. You must open your hands to receive the blessings of the Lord, which means you have to be willing to give to receive. Now, I'm not going to press those principles too hard. I'm just giving you some pictures of what this looks like. All right? This is how you catch raccoons, at least according to where the red fern grows. You put something in the little tree, something shiny. The raccoon puts his hand in, grabs a hold of it, and he will be caught by his own unwillingness to let go. And then along comes the hunter and... Okay, that's what my kids say. That's their sound, chopping the head off. If you didn't get that, that's, that's what that was. All right, so that's not in the notes. I hope you, hopefully you enjoyed that. And the poor raccoon won't let go, and he's dead. Not the biblical principle, but you get the illustration, right? <laughs> so the principle from Exodus and from the Old Testament is this. We don't give God the leftovers. We give God from the first harvest to the last harvest. And by giving from the first harvest, we are demonstrating our faith in the last harvest, in the next harvest. If you wait until you've paid for everything else, if you wait until you've done everything you want to do, you will have very little to give. And this is how many of us live. I will give God after I've done everything else. And then we have very little or nothing to give. This is why you set aside what God wants you to give and then discipline yourself to live on the rest. You set aside weekly what God wants you to give, and then you must be disciplined to live on the rest. Whether that's setting aside 10%, setting aside 50%, or as I think uh, Laterno, last name was Laterno in, in, in Texas, he set aside 90% and lived on 10. It's not about the percentage, because we've already talked about that. It's about what does God want me to give? I set that aside for the time to give it, whether I give weekly to the, to the Lord's work or, or yearly or quarterly, whatever it is. I set it aside, and I live off what God wants me to live off, and that disciplines me to live according to the way God wants me to live. That's the principle. Now, notice in the agrarian society, the farmer isn't paid weekly or even monthly. Some of you have lived as farmers. So the first portion of the first harvest is the first income for that year. So when they're setting aside this, this, uh, this giving of the first fruits, it wasn't like the farmer was being paid and then we had a harvest and now he gets some. This is really the first income for the year. You, that's a lot of faith there. That we'll even have another harvest. There won't be uh, other things that come, diseases or pestilence or, or animals or something like that. Whenever you have income, set aside the first part for giving. Plan ahead. That's the frequency of giving. Secondly, the amount of giving. Here we go. Are you ready? Big question. How much do I give? 
I got all kinds of jokes. I need to be careful. All right, let's just talk about what the scripture says. The first thing is giving is a personal decision. The amount that you give is a personal decision. That is found. Uh, the principle is found in, throughout Scripture, but in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, it says this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. There it is. As he has decided in his heart. What have you decided to give? It's a personal decision. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Just as what we saw in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2 this is also a command in relation to a one-time collection for the saints in Jerusalem. So Paul addresses that collection in 1 Corinthians. He addresses that collection in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's a one-time collection. So this principle flows out of a one-time thing. But I take it as a principle for all giving because I believe, according to the Scripture, that all New Covenant giving is free will. Free will offerings. Free will. No tithe all free will. There were ties in the Old Testament, and we've talked about that last week, that don't apply as biblical commands for God's people to give a tenth at this time. So all charitable giving in the, in the new covenant is completely free will. It's a personal decision. The amount of giving then is secondly decided upon is according to your personal financial abilities. The amount of giving is a personal decision the amount of giving is according to your personal financial abilities. I see that most clearly in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 8, 3 and 4. For they gave according to their means. There it is. According to their means is according to your abilities. But notice, he testifies that they gave beyond their means. But notice... That's the next one, of their own accord, free will, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So these Macedonians is who he's talking about there. He's talking to the Corinthians about another group of people, the Macedonians, who are giving to the Jerusalemites. And so he's using the Macedonians as an example of generosity, great generosity. They gave even out of their poverty, it's interesting here in this passage that they gave beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the favor. It sounds to me like Paul wasn't very happy. Maybe he was reluctant at taking their contributions. Their poverty was so great that as they were collecting for the, for the, for the Christians in Jerusalem, he was like, no, maybe you shouldn't give this. Maybe you should hold on to some of this. Maybe you've been too generous. Can you imagine? When was the last time the pastor got up and said, you quit giving so much. It's way too much. It's hold off. Take some back. We'll have refunds at the end of the year for, for those who gave too much. <laughs> it never happens, right? But this is kind of the idea I see behind this. They were begging for the opportunity of helping out their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. But the principle to see for us is that they could only give out of what they had. You can only give according to your means. How much has God given you? What are your means? Obviously, we're all aware that not everyone in here has exactly the same means. We all have different amount of means. And that's based upon some other things. But the principle is give out of what you have, out of what God has given to you. So they were in deep poverty, and they could only give a little bit, but they were greatly commended for the little they gave because they gave generously. They even gave sacrificially, even though they were in deep poverty. Now, how do you determine your personal financial abilities? 
I'm getting as practical as I can. How do you determine what your means are? I believe the first thing to start with is your biblical financial obligations. What are your biblical financial obligations? Do you know the Bible tells you that you have financial obligations? And so you start there with what God gives you. God gives you resources to meet your own needs first. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So why has God given you work? First of all, to do what? To feed yourself. <laughs> to feed yourself. And then also, in that same passage, and that's a passage um, that's in 1 Timothy 5, I believe. He's talking about widows. It comes up in the idea of widows. He also has given you money not just to feed yourself, but also to feed your family. Men, you feed your family. You feed yourself and your family. If you don't feed yourself... You can't earn more to feed your family. So if the breadwinner doesn't eat any of the bread, he dies. If the ox is treading out the corn, what should you do for the ox? You should put a feed bag on him, not muzzle him, so he can eat while he provides. So let dad eat. That's the principle. You got it? All right. Let dad eat first. No, just kidding. That's not the principle. Yeah. Let it, dad eat the most. Well, that probably happens anyway. All right. So, <laughs> so the idea is we, 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 we feed ourselves and if we're not willing to work, then no one should give us food. Think about how that works in today's society, but we'll move on. Feed our family. So the first financial obligation is to feed yourself and to feed your family. And then it flows out of that to caring for widows and orphans and those in your periphery, especially family that are, that are widows. So every, even widows in Timothy, in, in 1 Timothy 5, even widows were to provide for other widows in their family. If you're a widow and you don't have home obligations, you should get a job and provide for widows who can't work. So even widows were, were commanded to, to provide for other widows in their family. So no one's let off the hook unless you can't work and provide. And there are people who can't for, for various reasons, and they need to be cared for, but God will provide your family with what you need to feed your family. That's where we start. That's a biblical financial obligation. So I would say this. Never starve your family to give to anyone else. And when I say starve, I actually mean starve in the way that you would define starvation. Okay? So we don't, we don't take food off our table, all the food we have, and then give it to someone else so that they don't starve, so that we can starve. You've got a responsibility to your family. Now, starve is a, is a hard word because, well, most of us aren't worried, even close to starving. I look around here. American Christians are very well fed. Not all of us are as well fed as others for various reasons, but the idea is we don't have to worry about that, so it's not typically a problem, but if it was a problem, I would say this about the Macedonians. As they gave, they never gave in a way that would violate meeting their own family's needs or Paul wouldn't have taken it. They gave generously, they gave sacrificially, but not so sacrificially that they starved themselves. How good is it to be if the Macedonians starve themselves so that the Jerusalem's, Jerusalemites don't starve? It doesn't work that way. So we've got to think through the principles here, but I want to be, be clear. Notice also in Mark 7, we've been over this before, I preached through Mark, the Corban rule. Another financial obligation is caring for your elderly parents in their elderly years when they need your help. I want you to understand this clearly. I don't know how to say this more clearly. Do not give to the church if you are not providing for your parents if they need your help. Do not give to charitable organizations if you are unwilling to bring your parents to live in your home or provide for their care in other ways. Do not leave it to the state 
to the welfare system to provide for your own family. That is an abomination and a sin, and it needs to stop. And if that means the church gets less, that's the way God has set it up. And therefore, by God's grace, our taxes would be less, and it all comes back around if we do it right. <laughs> so the idea here is, is meet those family obligations. If we aren't meeting those family obligations, like the Pharisees who said, I'm going to give this money to the Lord. I can't take care of mom and dad. So sorry, mom and dad. The Lord's work needs the money. What did Jesus say about that? They were set aside, setting aside the law of God for their own traditions, and it was wicked. We have to understand how this works. Okay, I don't know why I got so worked up about that. I was hoping my kids are paying attention. You guys got that? When dad is old. He's living with you and not the nursing home. Who said that? Yeah, they, I bet they do. Yeah. <laughs> okay, focus. Now, what I'm saying about this is never give away what God has commanded you to use to meet family obligations. God has some harsh words for those who do. You are nullifying God's word. That's in Mark. You're nullifying God's, you're setting aside God's word. And then in Matthew, you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. If you do not provide for your family, you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. The second uh, set of principles of meeting biblical financial obligations comes out of Romans 13, verse 7. Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. That's the principle. Pay what you owe. Now, what do you owe? The first thing he talks about is taxes. <laughs> There you go. I knew we'd get there sooner or later, Pastor. You gotta talk about taxes. You have to pay your taxes. And then you also have to pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. I believe this is talking about bills. Bills, and then it goes into respect and honor, and so there's more than just paying financially, but it's connected to financial things. And I also believe another category of revenue would be debt. You pay your taxes, you pay your bills. Your bills are electric, gas, water, sewer, all those bills. The reason you pay that bill is because you've already used the electric, water, and sewer, and now you're paying for what you've already used. They, they let you use it, and they bill you at the end of the month. That is something you owe them. Now, if you don't want to owe them that, then don't use the water, sewer, and electric. You owe them that before you give away to charity. You cannot say, well, we need to give that special offering, and that means consumer's energy doesn't get what they're owed. No, that's, that's unbiblical. That's sinful. Pay your bills. Now, if you want to give more and you, you want to use less electricity, turn off all your stuff and live in the dark, I'm okay with that. You can give more to the Lord. But pay what you already have used. All right? Also, pay your debts. Pay your debts. Pay your mortgage. Pay your car payment. Whatever your debts are. Individual, personal debts, pay your debts. Never give to the church or any charitable organization or ministry what God has commanded you to pay. Notice, pay. Pay to all what is owed. Don't steal from the civil government. Don't steal from creditors. Never choose to give to charity what you owe to someone else. Why not? Because it's not your money to give. It is theirs. When you owe it, it's not yours anymore. It's theirs. This is why we say this very clearly. Please listen very carefully. Never go into debt for charitable giving. Never go into debt for charitable giving. Never take out a loan to give to the church. Never take out, never get a personal loan to give more money. Never go into debt for charitable giving. 
We can talk about debt, and I'm not going to go too deeply into it at this point. But that the Bible would never encourage you to go into debt to give. And if anyone does encourage you to go into debt to give to them, they are wicked, they're a charlatan, they're an unbeliever, they're a false gospel, false teacher, and run. Some of you have been in churches like that. You've been under people like that. Maybe you get some of those things in the mail. Avoid them at all costs. Now, let me, hear, let me say this clearly. You can sell everything you own and give it all away. Because whose is it to give? That's your stuff. Sell it all and give it away if God directs you. But don't sell someone else's stuff and give it away. You see how that works? That's the problem with our tax system and the welfare system where we say, hey, everybody needs to pay their fair share. I'm going to make you give what you don't want to give instead of giving what I want to give. That's theft. So we talk about taxes as theft and all that. I'm not going to get into all those details. But the idea is this. You don't have to take other people's money to pay what you want them to pay. You give of yourself. You don't give of others' stuff. Is that clear? You better say amen or I'm going to go back over it. <laughs> is that clear? I mean, we want to move on, but I want to make sure you get that. Because if, if you don't get what your financial obligations are biblically, how do you know what God would have you to give if you don't know what he's commanded you to do with your finances to start with? And we've missed it on so many fronts. If we don't get that, then we don't know, are we giving too much? Are we giving too little? How much do we have to give? And that everyone has the same amount, which means it's going to be different amounts for different people. How do we make these determinations? I want to give you clear biblical guidance on what to do. Now, I want to say something clearly here. What I am not saying, notice the word not, is that you must completely pay off all of your debts before you give. Why is that? Because you have monthly debt obligations. Most of you would have maybe a monthly mortgage or maybe a monthly car payment or three or a boat payment or something like that. You have monthly obligations. And some of you are sitting out there going, wait, I have to pay off all my debt before I give to the Lord? That'll be like in 30 years. Whew, thank you, Pastor. When I can call into Dave Ramsey and scream, I'm debt-free, then I'll start giving. No, that's not how that works. If you have monthly obligations because you've taken out these, these, these debts, Make sure your monthly obligations are met, but you don't have to pay off the entire thing before you, before you get to the Lord. Now, as I say that, this highlights the problem of going into debt in the first place. So the Bible never encourages debt. I don't want to be too strong here on some things, and this isn't the point of the sermon. It never encourages debt. But most of us have it, whether we should have or not. And if, if at all possible, get out of it as soon as possible, and you'll be in a much better position, no doubt about it. The borrow, borrower is what? Servant to the lender. You want to be a slave? Take out debt. And most of us are slaves in one way or another. Now, the reason why most of this debt is so bad is because many Christians have let selfish consumerism drive their choices, and they are in debt up to their eyeballs and have nothing to give. Pastor, my monthly obligations are so high that many months I can't even meet my monthly obligations to pay my debts and my, and my bills and, and uh, to feed my family. I will tell you this. If you are in that position, repent. Because you have been a very poor steward of what God has given to you, and you have not used what he's given to you wisely because he will never not give you what you need to meet your needs, and you have to take out that debt. You made poor financial decisions by not trusting in the Lord and doing that if you can't meet your own needs. And if for some reason, outside of your ability to foresee certain things and certain catastrophic things have come upon you, you should sell everything you can and move in with your family. 
And if you have family like that, you should try to help them by having them move in and make sure they're working 80 hours a week to pay off their bills and their debts and all that kind of stuff. There's ways to work around this, and we're not really thinking through this financially. And so the problem is we've so burdened ourselves and obligated ourselves outside the will of God that now we have nothing to give to charity. Repent of that, change your behavior, learn how to get out of debt and get out of debt quickly as possible, and then never make those kind of decisions again. Now, have I been clear on that one? Or do you want to hear more about that? <laughs> we, we can go about this all day long, but notice the responsibilities are there, and so if you have been sinful in your obligations, that doesn't mean you get to be sinful on the back end and then not pay what you owe and give it to the Lord. You have to pay off those creditors. You have to pay what you owe, and that might mean you can give nothing to the church. And if you feel bad about that, repent and change and do better in the future. But God will be fine without you. He doesn't need that money back. Because we have a God who does amazing, miraculous things with little, do we not? If he can feed 4,000, if he can feed 5,000 with just one simple lunch, he doesn't need that $10. He doesn't need that $1,000. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But notice how this works. Every financial decision is a spiritual decision that must be made in prayer to God because all that he has given to us is his and you will give an account to him. How much do we give and to whom we give it is absolutely a matter of prayer and agreement if you're married. But it's not the only financial decision to pray about. All financial decisions are spiritual decisions and are a matter of prayer. If you bought that boat, if you bought that house, if you bought that car and you couldn't afford it and you bought it and you, uh, you overburdened yourself by selfish consumerist decisions, you weren't praying. And if you were praying, you were praying selfishly and you weren't listening because God would have told you what? He'd have told you no. And you weren't listening because most of the time we weren't even praying. And with that kind of mentality, every financial decision is a prayer decision. And when we start praying about every financial decision, we'll start praying a whole lot more. And then we'll start making far better decisions, and then we will know what God would have us to give. It's not just about praying about what I give. It's what I do with all 100%. Am I praying about my financial decisions? And uh, if you're feeling convicted over how little you pray about financial matters, you can join me in repentance. And I do mean that seriously. So these last two weeks, I've been convicted about how little I pray about financial decisions. Let me tell you how that works in my life. I was taught at a very young age that tithing was commanded. You give 10% to the Lord, and you budget the other 90%. You budget wisely, similar to Dave Ramsey's plan. My parents didn't know who he was, but they knew the same principles. And so I learned to save. I learned to spend wisely. I learned to budget. I learned to give. And by God's grace, he's been very gracious to me uh, that I was able to graduate college debt-free. Let that sink in for a minute. That was in the 90s. That wasn't in the 70s. All right? That wasn't today either. That was God's grace. I also learned some heavy financial decisions. Tracy and I learned some heavy financial, painful financial decisions about three years into marriage. If you want to hear that personal story, some of you heard that. You can talk to me later. Um, but to by God's grace, he allowed us to get how far in debt? How far in debt? I don't think it was that bad. All right. <laughs> That number grows every time I ask you. Uh, it's about like $35,000, I believe. Uh, but by God's grace, we decided painfully to get out of debt. And so we had to sell uh, our home and move into an apartment. And by God's grace, that was right at the beginning of the housing boom. And we got about $30,000, $40,000 more for our condominium than we paid for it three years before. 
which was also God's grace because two years later, it was way back down. <laughs> so, and then we had to live in apartments for three years until we moved up here, but we got out of debt completely before we mortgaged, bought a mortgage and got a house. So I'm not saying, I'm just saying by God's grace, but I've learned, we've learned all those things. What I'm saying about this is I was raised in a certain way and therefore when I'm budgeting wisely and I'm living a disciplined life and I've decided to give my 10%, my decisions become really easy because it's what I want and do I have the money and then I can do it. If I don't have the money and it doesn't fit in the budget, I don't do it. How much prayer is involved in that? Very little for me personally. I pray about the budget. We set these things aside. We pray about what we're to give. But we just, we just we, we set aside all those categories. Some of you have done that. You've done the budgeting. You've done the categories. You've been through a class. We did a money class here, 13 weeks on money, taught you how to do all that. It's very wise. But what that did is that takes away from me my, my burden to pray about, do I pray about that $300 here or that $200 there or that $1,000 there? No, it's in the budget. I've got the money. I just spend it. Are you with me? Do you understand? So I'm talking about some of you are very wise financially. You've done very well. You've followed biblical principles. You've done all those things. But what we've done is we've taken the, the spiritual side out of it. And maybe I should be giving more. Maybe I should be giving less. Maybe I should be doing something different. But there's very little prayer in it because we're just good money managers, not prayer, prayer warriors who are deciding these things. And so I'm convicted of that. So if you fit that category with me, maybe so far you've been feeling great about yourself, maybe not so much now. And so I'm trying to bring it all, all the aspects into how we do these things. And I'm convicted because I'm praying very little when I should be praying far more um, because every financial decision is a matter of prayer. It doesn't mean you can't plan. I'm just, just hang with me on some of these things. Now, does God want you to give a percentage of your income? Does he want you to give a specific amount? Do you determine that weekly or annually? It's for you to decide what God wants you to give. So young person, that might mean 10%. That might mean less than 10%. Or it might mean more than 10%. Pray and follow God's direction. Everyone needs to do that. Pray and follow God's direction. Now what's our motivation for giving? Third point, the motivation for giving. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what kind of giver? Some of you know of a man named Steve Green, and every time I read this verse, I hear the song, God loves a cheerful giver, ha, <laughs> Yep, that's a kid's song. I would sing it, but I don't want to do it. Okay, so every time I read this, I, I hear that song in my head. So here's the point. Don't ever give reluctantly. Don't ever give under pressure, especially from a pastor. Don't ever give under pressure from a pastor. Okay, this is a pastor speaking. Don't ever give under pressure from a religious person. Don't ever do that. Whatever you, sh you give should be done cheerfully. Notice the giver that God loves. Why does God love cheerful givers? God loves a cheerful giver because he's a cheerful giver. The Father willingly, we sang it, we sang it today. The Father in love sent his son. He cheerfully gave his only son. The son joyfully came. He didn't come under compulsion. He didn't come reluctantly. He didn't come to this earth because he had to. The father made him. He willingly came. He willingly laid down his life. He willingly gave himself on the cross to die for sinners, to pay for the sins of other people, to pay for our sins who trust in him. He did that willingly. He did that cheerfully. It says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. 
And it's set down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He did it for the joy. He did it willingly. He did it cheerfully. That's how God gives. God does not look down on us and say, oh, they're asking for more? They need more? They got problems? I mean, I already gave them enough last time. What's wrong with those people? He's not like me. He's not a reluctant uh, skin flint of a giver to his kids. He's not yelling at them about how they spend their money. He's giving cheerfully and joyfully. Of course, he's going to convict us when we're wrong. He's going to bring the Holy Spirit's conviction when we're sinful. Of course, he's going to do those things. But he's a cheerful, joyful giver. That's how we should give. If a plate comes by and you can't put it in cheerfully, stick it back in your pocket. God doesn't need your money. If you can't give to your neighbor cheerfully, joyfully, if you can't give to missionaries cheerfully, joyfully, if you can't give to this church cheerfully and joyfully, keep it. It's better for you. It's better for you. Do what you do joyfully. Because that's the gospel message, and that's the principles of the gospel being lived out in our daily lives. So trust in Jesus Christ because the Son willingly gave his life for you. Trust in Jesus Christ because the Father loved you and gave his only Son to die on the cross for your sins. He's a generous God. He's a joyful God. He's a cheerful God. He is not who you think he is. And trust in him and be saved from your sins today. That's the motivation. What about the categories? The biblical categories of local church support. <laughs> so why should you give to your local church? Remember I said, how much should you give and to whom should you give it? You've just been assuming this whole time that everything we give has to go to the local church or most of it or some of it. Uh, I'm not gonna say that necessarily without making a biblical case for that. So what are the categories for local church giving? Why should you give to this church? What should you be supporting in the local church? 1 Corinthians 9, 8 to 12 Verse 9, 8-12 teaches this. Support the elders of your local church so that they can devote themselves to the work of the ministry. Support the elders of your local church so that they can devote themselves to the work of gospel ministry, to the work of the ministry. And that's, that's a full, broad work of the ministry. You can look it up. We don't have time today to, to look at 1 Corinthians 9. The same principle is found in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, where it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. One is you honor them in your heart, and you honor them by submitting to them, you honor them in the way you view them, but there's a double honor, that means financial. There's a spiritual honor and a financial honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, those who are working hard throughout the week to teach and preach. It's financial, support the elders. So here's what you need to think about. Do you want to make it possible for the elders to have time to prepare sermons, Sunday school lessons, discipling materials? Do you want to make it possible for men to have more time for discipleship and counseling? Do you want to free up the elders of this church from the need of providing for their own financial obligations so they can dedicate themselves full-time to ministry? And that's what you've done for me. For 13 years, you provided for my needs so I can devote myself full-time to the gospel ministry. It's a tremendous blessing. You have been super generous. God has met all of my needs and then some. And I thank you and praise you and bless your name because of that. Good job. Now, do we want to have more elders doing it full-time or other elders doing it part-time? Do we want to increase our ability to do more ministry? It will take more support. And so we have to think about that. If you value the preaching and teaching and want it to continue, then support this local church. If you prefer not to listen to good preaching and teaching online, just sit home on YouTube and watch John MacArthur, support this local church. Does he preach better sermons? Of course he does. He's a great preacher. But is it better in person? Is it better with other believers? Is it better to hear this stuff come out of the mouth of someone you know and someone who cares for you? Then you have to support the local church. If not, just be an online Christian. See where that takes you. All right, I won't go into that. If you value the biblical counseling that we provide free of charge, then support this local church. 
If you value our spiritual influence in this community, then support this local church. If you are behind what we're doing and you think it's valuable, then you need to support it. So you support what you find is valuable, you need to invest in what God is doing locally. Secondly, support the needy in your local church. From 1 Timothy 5, again, 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. This is financial honor. Widows who are truly widows need to be financially honored, and we support the needy, widows and orphans and others in our church who are truly needy and have met the requirements. We need money to do that, so support the, the local church. Letter C, support missionaries taking the gospel to unreached lands. Where do we find support of missionaries in the Bible? We find it in 3 John, verses 5 through 8. Beloved, it is the faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. These brothers are strangers. It's not just missionaries from your own church. It's passing through missionaries. They testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to do what? Support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So support missionaries who are taking the gospel to unreached lands. Why do I say unreached lands? Is because we do not want to support missionaries to go to a place where there's a bunch of Christians who won't support the missionary. So there's, a, there's an idea here, and there's a way to think through missionaries' philosophy. We have to support people who will not be supported when they go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles won't support them. In fact, the Gentiles will probably hate them, and they can't even maybe get a job where the Gentiles are. So we have to support them on the way. But if you go to a place where there's a bunch of Christians, you're going to plant a church or do something, and there's a bunch of people, bunch of people to support you, then we shouldn't be giving money to those kinds of missionaries, even if they're missionaries. There's a, there's a philosophy here, but we need to support people who won't get support from the people that they are ministering to. That's the key. And so we give to missionaries. If you want to support the missionaries we have, if you want the gospel to go forth through the missionaries we support, you have to keep supporting us. I'll come back. Letter D, support needy Christians around the world. The whole point of 2 Corinthians 8 through 9 is to support other needy Christians who aren't in your local church, meeting the financial needs of suffering Christians around the world. And we do that somewhat, but I think we could probably do a lot more if we were more generous. I don't have a, a, a great ideas, but I just feel like I do very little of this. Maybe you do very little of this. Maybe you do a lot. I don't know you personally and what you give outside of the church or in those things. So, but I just think we could do better at, at doing some of these things. It needs support if we're going to do it. Letter E becomes the, the, the pain point. So I've saved the pain point all the way to the end. What about the support needed for facilities and support personnel? What about the support needed to take care of church facilities and this personnel to keep, ter, keep track of the, of, of the church facilities? I don't have any scripture there because uh, church facilities and church support personnel is not biblical. Now, when I say it's not biblical, I don't mean it's sinful or, or wrong. I just mean it's not in the Bible anywhere. You don't find it in the Scripture. Now, I found one place where it might apply. So I'm open to this, and I'm wrestling with it. This is where the Levitical tithe might be applicable in principle. So the Levitical, Levitical tithe in the Old Testament was to support the Levites, and they were support personnel to the priests in the temple and in the tabernacle. If you didn't pay the Levites, they wouldn't be able to do all that work that helped the priests to do all their work. And so they are support personnel to the temple, the tabernacle, those things. So here's the point. To facilitate the ongoing ministry of the local church, what do we need to give? The ongoing ministry. In the 
Old covenant sacrificial system, the maintenance of the tabernacle and temple were not optional, but absolutely required. If you did not support the Levites, who could not support the priests, what happened to all the spiritual ministry in the temple and tabernacle? There's no one there to do the sacrifices. There's no one there to move things. There's, it, would all, it would all go under. You had to do that. That's why it was commanded, and that's why the tithe was required, because without it, all of the worship system fell apart. What happens in the new covenant if you don't have a building? Do we need an altar with animal sacrifices and people full-time doing that? Do we do that anymore? No, the sacrificial system is dead. Therefore, those things are not required. You don't have to pay elders. You don't have to have a building. You don't have to have any of those things in the new covenant. We could, this whole thing could burn down and we can meet right in the field next week and we could do all the same things, even if you pay me or not. That won't be as good, but it'll be something. All right? So, hey, we can, we don't, these things are not required for the system to continue. And that's, that's the point. The meeting house, the church building, isn't commanded in the new covenant. We are, this is not the tabernacle. This is not the temple. Please do not tell your children not to run the halls because this is God's house. All right? Tell them this is the church house and quit running in the halls because you're going to knock over some old person. Stop it. All right, that's why. Love others as God loved you. Put others first. Don't do it. Be thoughtful of others and don't be loud and crazy in the foyer, in the hallway, and don't break anything when you're playing around because this is things that God has provided. But this is not God's house. This is not the tabernacle. This is not the temple. God doesn't live here. He lives where? He lives in us. We are the temple. We are the tabernacle. The new covenant, we replace the temple as God's people, as a church. Now, all that God has given to us as a church is nice to have. We've got some nice stuff, don't we? It's like 6.75 acres on top of this hill, and this building is completely paid off. No mortgage, no debt. All, what, all this stuff? I mean, this nice cushioned seat you sit in. Come back Sunday night. We have better seats on Sunday night. <laughs> you think these are good. They get better. You wish they, were, you wish they had a little more padding on these long Sundays, right? But this is the way it goes. God has provided these lights, this the equipment, all the things God, God has given us. He's been so generous, has he not? Is any of it necessary? It's not. Is it required? Is it commanded? It's not. So here's the question. Should we continue to pour money into this property? <laughs> we spend more than $40,000 a year, at least 21% of our budget, on this stuff. Now, I'm going to say this, which is far better than most churches, which are probably closer to 50%, because they still have mortgages, they still take out much, they have too much facility, all kinds of reasons. But it's still a significant investment every year to spend $40,000 on this property. And then we talk about things we need to improve on, things we would like to do, we need more money. So the question is, do we value what we have, and should we continue to pour money into this or not? Now, before you make it, I'm not bringing any suggestions. I'm just wanting you to think and pray because I'm challenging you that if we believe this is what God would have us to have and we need to support it accordingly, not out of a command, but out of a desire as God directs. If we don't think we should have it, we don't want to put the money into it, then let's don't. And if you don't give, it'll happen that way one way or the other. Now, whatever we think has a great return on investment, we must be willing to give what it takes to continue it. So if we don't want to be beholding to others to rent a facility, if we don't want it to set up and tear down every week, then we must be willing to give accordingly. If we want all of the things that are done by the church secretary and the custodian, 
done by people who are volunteering or not done at all, if we don't want that, then we have to be willing to support the church accordingly. And if we don't have a strong local church, then how are we going to be able to support the missionaries? So this is what I was going to say before. There have been many in our church, many who are not here any longer, who used to have such a strong concern for supporting the missionaries that we support. We could not cut budget, missionary budget, and different things. And I'm not saying they were wrong. I'm just saying now that they've left our church, are they still supporting those same missionaries? Are they still giving to those missionaries even if they're not giving here? Because if this church does not survive or, or does not have what it takes, then the, all the support of missionaries, 30, over $30,000 a year, will not be there unless we all do it individually. So we must think local first because if we don't have a strong local congregation that can give to missionaries, we won't have anything for those missionaries. And so we have to think through how this works out biblically. And so if we want to do these things, we start local, we do the right things locally, whatever that is, and then we, we work ourselves outward. And, and so there, there has to be a lot of wisdom here. And the, but the, I believe the priority is absolutely clear biblically. And so we have to think through these things. And one last thought, I'm not going to say much here. I, had, I have a, a page of optional information. And that was, check the time and decide whether to, how much to say here. This is because this is the going, what I would say here is the most controversial thing probably. So um, I should just leave that hanging and then close in prayer and let you guys all wonder what it is. I'm considering whether our view of what to do with all that God has given us is a little bit upside down in one sense, even more than what I've said. And that is our understanding of investment versus charity. When I say charity, I mean everything we just give away to the Lord's work or give away to other people, whatever that might be. So I use the word charity very all broad. Everything you give away that you get tax deductible <laughs> on your taxes. All right, to the church, to missionaries, to the Red Cross, to your neighbor, whatever it is, charity. I'm wondering if we've been giving away more than we should give and instead of investing in things that will last beyond our own lifetimes. Now, some of our charitable giving will be invested into a place like Calvary Baptist Church and these facilities that will be a gospel witness in this community by God's grace long after we live. So there's, there's value in that. But I'm thinking of businesses. I'm thinking of owning property. I'm thinking of farms. I'm thinking of a way that we could build into this community through investment. That's not charity, but investment. I'm thinking about taking what I give and wondering if all that I give away to charity, if someone would be better used by investing it in businesses and property and those kinds of things. Not for selfish means, not to be rich or to live wealthily or to even give more to charity down the road. If we have a short, <laughs> if we have a short-term mindset that God is going to return in our lifetime and therefore all of the stuff we have will be just burned up or done away with or given to someone else because we're going to be raptured out of here, then I'm not going to build anything for the next generation or, or 500 years from now. But if that is not what is going to happen, then the farm I own and what I do with what God has given me to expand my influence financially and property and owning property in Owasso and having a better, bigger influence in our community of maybe even taking on those kind of roles instead of just giving it away to, to ministry that ends up not building anything, how much do we give an investment? That's my question. It's just starting to think about that. Because I, I had a mindset whether my, anybody did this intentionally or not, that everything that I couldn't, I didn't have to use on myself, I lived, try to live very frugally. 
I'm, I'm, I'm not that frugal, but I try to live frugally, disciplined, and all those kinds of things. And then I give all of it away, the rest of it away to charity, mostly to the local church, but to others. But maybe some of that should be used not just to charity, but to investment in ways that could build the kingdom of God in ways that beyond our typical thinking. I don't know what to do with that other than just throw it out there and see what sticks. And what that would mean, though, is potentially we are giving more to this church than we should be giving. Because some of it we should be investing in other things that God would have us to do. That's where prayer comes in. Prayer comes in for you individually. Prayer comes in for the leadership of this church, the elders and the deacons. But also, just there's so much, so many pieces to that. And so prayer is necessary. Hours of prayer, long seasons of prayer, on our knees before the Lord, individually and corporately, to know what God would have us to do. Because if all that we have left in Owasso is this church building on this hill, and that's the only impact we will have in 100 years, it's not enough. Why do I say that? Because someday, God forbid, the government will get greedy enough, big enough, tyrannical enough that they will come and just take it. By God's grace, if we have a greater influence in this community, by God's grace, we can see uh, a revival spiritually first and then culturally second so that there is no tyrannical government in 100 years or 500 years to do such a wicked thing. But there are places in this world where all that has been given away is gone because the Christians failed to have an impact on the culture enough to keep what God had given to them and what they had put into ministry. I don't know how to think through all of that personally. I'm just challenging you to think about it, pray about it, think about it, talk to me about it. Here's what I see. Now, this is real personal. Now, we want to cut the feed now or stop the recording now. We came uh, here from Fort Myers, Florida. Fort Myers, Florida has got a lot of money. Not everybody there is rich, but there's a lot of money. There's a church in Fort Myers, Florida. Anything I'm going to say here is not going to smirch that church. I'm just going to be honest because I want you to think it through. It's uh, McGregor Baptist Church, good Southern Baptist Church. I think really solid. Preaches the gospel, good people, doing the right, doing good things. They own 50 acres in Fort Myers, Florida. 50 acres. They've got giant buildings. They've got a, they've got a school building. They have a gymnasium. They have an auditorium that'll seat 2,000 people, 1,000 people. I don't know how big it is now. They have 50 acres to build, and they've only built on a small portion of 50 acres, even these massive buildings that they have. And then I've been to First Baptist in Orlando. That is not a good church, but it used to be. 50 acres in, in, in Orlando. 50 acres in Orlando. Massive buildings. They had a, an auditorium that would seat five, six, seven thousand people. You have the coffee shop. You have the gymnasium. You have all, you have the, you have all this, a thousand, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars poured into buildings on a campus. And when that church folds, what happens? What happens when the church no longer exists? Where does it all? We cannot view the 6.75 acres God has given us here as that kind of thing where we just want to build more and more buildings, larger and larger barns to house more and more people. Of course we want more people. And of course we have to think through some of those challenges. But the mentality behind that where some of those Christians who gave millions of dollars could have invested that in something that would last outside of a, of a location, outside of a property, outside of facilities. We have to think differently or we will see so much of what the past generation had. Godly Christian people who sacrificially gave all just go away with no real impact. That's it. Let's pray. Father, 
I'm just burdened. I'm convicted. I've got a lot of questions, very few answers, but Lord, your word is clear on many things. Lord, help us to be faithful to what we see clearly, obedient. Lord, make us prayerful. Work in us. Lord, I just want to ask forgiveness for my own selfish living, my own lack of prayer, lack of seeking your face on all my financial things. And Lord, I pray for wisdom for our elders and our leaders that we would would be wise. And Lord, that we would we would be able to do more. Whatever that means, whatever you think, Lord, we would have a greater impact. We just have been thinking so small. We've just been so stuck in maybe just very limited thinking, very limited praying. And we are reaping what we have sown in our culture, in our state, in our community. And Lord, we pray for repentance and transformation. We pray for revival. And that has to do with our our pocketbook and our resources as well. Lord, do this work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.